we got two numpties. Oh, oh, look at that. We got three numpties. TK, you, you joined while the mic is hot. We're already recording. You missed all the small talk where we gossiped about you. Are you not going to speak? I want to make sure your mic works. That's how we do it, baby. Okay. What's up, guys? It's good to see y'all. Nice to meet you. Going? Um, so Jackson Lasky and David Mullen Muir. Mullen Moore. Moore. Okay. I knew I'd get it wrong. I just didn't know in which direction. No worries. Uh, both guys, at least David for sure, uh, Jackson just recently, I've been, I've been following you, looking at some of your Twitter history. Uh, both of these guys are with uh, Unbounded Capital, which is a, a very interesting venture capital firm um, that is all in on BSV. And I would say, I think you guys have the most compelling and rational arguments for BSV that I have heard anyone articulate. A lot of BSV fans have like some really good arguments, but they also like have some weird kind of like irrational faith-based fanboyism. And you guys just have a really kind of nuts and bolts, hard nosed, like this is why as an investment, this ecosystem makes sense. So I've been fascinated since I came across your, I don't know if it was your YouTube channel first or what, and we started kind of chatting over email and your book is awesome. The case against multi-coin capital or something like that. Basically like, it's basically like, a maximalist argument, but one that's actually um, good, unlike the kind of BTC maxis that get a little a little silly sometimes. So, uh, I don't, TK says he doesn't like backstory. He doesn't like to asking people like, "So, how'd you get started? And where'd you get into Bitcoin? Whatever." I always like that stuff. So I don't know. Should we just start with like some current topic, TK? Am I not allowed to ask about backstory? You tell me, buddy. <laughs> no, I, I, I do like to hear some backstory. I, I, I just want to get into the, the ideas that people have as well. But, but I, I do want to hear some background. And I, and I think especially with you guys, we should talk about it a bit. So yeah, let's, let's jump into that. Um, I would love to know just briefly, like, where did you both come from? And then was it, was it VC that you got into first and then steered your VC towards Bitcoin and then BSV? Or was it you were into BSV and you decided VC was where you wanted to go? I'd love to just get a, a flavor for your, your background and how that all came about. Yeah, sure. sure. Go ahead, Jack. All right. Um, well, first I should clarify, well, for one, thank you guys for having us on the show. Uh, I've been a big fan of what you guys are doing for a while now. And I actually, I think, discovered all of you independently through shows like, you know, Tom Woods, The Bob Murphy Show, things like that. Uh, so it's good to finally get to speak with some of you guys. Um, let me first clarify that we're actually not just a venture capital fund. We are sort of a venture hedge hybrid. We actually have a few different funds which have different focuses, but none of them are exclusively structured like a venture capital firm, although we do make venture capital investments um, so now for, a, for, a non, for a non like uh, investment nerd type, a venture fund is where you are investing in startup companies that are building things. And in your case, specifically BSV related, when you say like hedge hybrid, what is the hedge fund component? What kind of investments are those? Is that like you're holding, you're investing in BSV by buying BSV? Or are you investing in other um, sort of traditional hedge fund type stuff? Yeah, I mean, most of our hedge strategy is trying to get exposure to what we think is going to be sort of a transition from a, you know, not BSV dominated cryptocurrency landscape to a BSV dominated cryptocurrency landscape. And so, you know, that that comes in a number of different investing vehicles, but mostly it's just 
a matter of like, what sorts of things are we allowed to invest in? And also the fact that uh, when you know, our LPs, if someone invests $500,000 with us, let's say, uh, we get all that money immediately and allocate it to the best of our ability. Uh, and we're an evergreen fund, so it's not like a 10-year window where we have maybe like a $50 million commitment. And then as we make investments, we call on our investors for that capital. Uh, we're always trying to maximize uh, the capital under management. And so we just go from venture to other options, depending on like what we think is you know, the best risk-adjusted option for our investors at that time. So you have a ton of flexibility. You're basically going to people and saying, invest in our fund because we have this particular outlook on the world and we have this skill at picking good places to put your money and we're going to put it into whatever we think is going to get the most return, but it's probably going to be startups building on BSV or some other, you know, mix of assets that we, you know, that we see based on our unique view of, of the market. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. I mean, what obviously we, we have a, we have a focus, you okay. know, just in terms of, you know, why doesn't every fund just say like, all right, we're just going to always examine all options everywhere in the world and like figure out what the best thing to do is. You can't do that. So we're, you know, we're limiting our focus in a way when we started out, we were crypto focused generally, and now we're BSV focused since we think that that's where the opportunity is. And it makes sense to limit our focus just in terms of our time and research to that area. So, uh, Dave and, and Steve and TK, you guys know, you know, just interrupt me, jump in anytime, whatever. It's, there's no, there's no format here. Uh, David, I'd, I'd love to know when did Unbounded start? And then when did you make the switch from like, hey, we're kind of investing in the crypto space broadly to it, BSV is, is it, this is the strategy. Yeah. So the fund actually predates me. Um, I came on board around two years ago. So it's at least two years old, a little bit older than that, I think, technically. Um, and we were, like Jackson said, investing in broad cryptocurrency blockchain projects. Um, and I don't remember the exact date, but the moment that we were like, okay, we're buying our first BSV was right around the delisting. Because um, we saw that and we were like, this is just absolute craziness, amazing time to enter. So maybe for like a month or two before that, we had been exploring Bitcoin SV, I lived in the Bay Area at the time, and I went to the BSV meetup that Joshua Hensley and Ryan Charles run. Um, so really, we went there. We didn't know much about BSV. We were interested in big block Bitcoin. Um, but we went there because we had this emotional inclination against BSV, and we really wanted to steel man that position and see if we were uh, onto something or if we were just being dumb and emotional. Uh, so when I went to that first meetup with Joshua Hensley, and Ryan Charles, I was like, okay, this warrants looking into, these are smart guys. These aren't, uh, you know, cult members of, of Craig Wright. So researching around that time, I think that was, do you know the month, Jackson? It was around like... I think it was probably like April 2019. Yeah, around there. And then uh, bought our first Bitcoin, which was just a hedge um, against initially our ignorance, and then just a hedge or an investment in the space that we thought was interesting. And then eventually we came to the realization that you know, spending time reading all these various white papers outside of BSV wasn't yielding a lot of uh, interesting investment opportunities. And just as fiduciaries, we were like, we can, we can really only invest in Bitcoin SV. We want to invest in public blockchains and they need to scale. So. What do you, what, like, what percent of your belief in BSV would you say was just like technical? Like, okay, the, the technicals here, this thing actually can scale and I haven't seen any other 
you know, version of Bitcoin or any other crypto that can. And what percent of it was like something else? Oh, the people involved or uh, the network or the, the patents or all these other things that people talk about. Um, I, I'd just be curious to hear that. So the, the technical stuff took a while to catch up to speed on, right? So initially, I think we saw this is a thing that is artificially undervalued. Uh, D-List was a great example of, of that. So it was a good investment from that perspective. Um, and then as we learned more, it just became more and more technically, you know, okay, Bitcoin SP scales, nothing else does. So it's hard to say a percentage, but um, it definitely started out more the former and then became more technical as, uh, as we did more research. Um, wh why not, like, why not BCH, for example? When, you know, what, 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 was the, what was the thing that made you say BSV has a better chance than BCH? Yeah. Well, we had, we had BCH exposure. Um, so when the fork happened, we, we had both, both chains and we made a decision to sell our BSV for BCH at that point. Um, and a lot of that was, I mean, I've been a big Roger Ver fan for a long time. When I entered the space, the whole cryptocurrency space in 2017, it was right after that BCH fork. Um, and that investment started similarly for me. Also, personally, I wasn't working for a fund but I saw everyone saying Roger Veer is this lying scammer and I watched him. Well, okay, no. And I saw that sentiment, you know, being widely pushed around the ecosystem. So I, I just kind of didn't know much about blockchain in general, but I just wanted to have some exposure to BCH because it seemed obviously undervalued because of that. Um, so, so when the fork happened with BSV, uh, initially we were kind of on team Roger Veer and hadn't really explored the technical differences. And one interesting thing for me was, Roger was my resource to learn about the technical differences between BTC and BCH. And I noticed that he just, he wasn't really giving a lot of explanation for this new fork, which seemed odd to me. So I was having to look elsewhere for information. So I think some alarm bells were going off and I, I felt a little bit weird about it, but um, the big difference, the big moment for us as a fund and for me personally, was the Bitcoin SV meetup that I went to in the Bay Area. It's funny. Uh, I had a similar experience. And I've, I think I can remember we talked to somebody else on this show who had a similar experience. I'm trying to remember who it was. Maybe it was Josh Hensley himself. But um, that when you're just sort of following Bitcoin and you're, you know, this is great. And these debates start happening. The insane way that people treated Roger Ver actually made a lot of people pay more attention to Roger to be like, well, why would these people be going so overboard attacking this guy? This seems fishy. And it drew, you know, drew a lot of people, myself included, to understand big block Bitcoin and become a fan of it. And that same phenomena again, happened with BSV, where it's like, why people are really insane and mad about this. But like, why? I haven't heard like a technical reason why this wouldn't work. Like, why can't big blocks work? Why can't, you know, whatever. Um, so that's, a, that's an interesting pattern. It's kind of like, I mean, I, I wouldn't use this as a rule, but you could at least use it as a starting point for inquiry, which is whatever the loudest uh, opinion is in crypto, like go as soon as possible and explore the complete opposite, like right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the whole, the first fork fit perfectly into this window where I just had this political red pilling and had to rethink my whole political worldview after the 20, 2016 election. So I was very sensitive to fake news and trying to parse out what's true and what's not. So 2016, that happens for me. 
2017, here comes Bitcoin. And it just, it slid right into that, that slot. So it just, it was very natural and a very fortunate timing for me. So is this part of your investment strategy? Uh, because you mentioned it twice the, that you were interested in investigating Roger Beer more deeply because of all these crazy things you were hearing and maybe happening again with BSB. Is that part of your explicit methodology is you try to capitalize on people's emotions because that tends, it probably means there's some yeah, investment opportunities since people aren't being rational. I wouldn't say it's an explicit part of our strategy. Um, I mean, personally, I, my introduction to investing was through like Benjamin Graham, the intelligent investor. And so, I mean, you find a great, if you find a good technical fundamental investment that people dislike, that's just the golden, that's the golden ticket. So um, for me, I like that personally. And I remember one conversation with Jack and Zach, our uh, managing partner, where we, where we were just like, had this realization that, wow, everyone hates Bitcoin SV and it's amazing. It's just like the perfect thing. It's, <laughs> it's this awesome technical network. There's amazing, smart, intelligent builders working on it and it's just loathed. So um, it's not an explicit part of our strategy, I wouldn't say, but it's, it's great when it happens. I love those like, I call them lighthouse moments because of referring to famous uh, saga where some economists were writing about how lighthouses could not be provided by the market, like in a time where they were being provided by the market, <laughs> right in the same city where the economist was writing, where like, I remember this happened with, uh, there was all these debates about zero conf, zero conf, it can't work, it's all, it's, it's shitty, it's dangerous, blah, blah, blah. And I remember being like, but I've been using zero comp all the time and it's delightful and it works great. Like, why are people worried about like, well, if we have zero comp, how are we going to make it work? And it's like, it is, it actually is working right now in the real world. You know, like BSV is similar. Like, oh, well, how well, people will just spam the blockchain with a bunch of useless data. Like, yeah, it's called Twitch and it's great. I use it every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so many ideas like that that are so widespread and coming from authoritative sounding sources. And especially when you get into the space initially, there's just, what are the resources to learn about it? You know, you can't, there's no formal, you know, blockchain courses at a university that you might trust or might not trust. Um, but you have to kind of go to this like decentralized information network online and kind of vet sources one by one. So for me, it was very difficult to kind of make sense of, you know, what sounds good on the surface and, and what's underneath it. And that's kind of what we, what Jack and I worked on in this book was taking some, surface level assumptions and exploring what's underneath it, what's informing the assumption. Uh, Cause it might not be the base layer that you think it is. It might be actually informed by hidden assumptions below. Yeah. Not only is it difficult to try to sort through that information, but you have a lot of people who are aware that because there's no authoritative source on Bitcoin, they can manipulate public opinion and people's ideas and cash in on manipulating public opinion by sounding authoritative and right. taking control of the information channels and saying, you know, and, and making it so you really have to dig deep to try to figure out exactly what the heck Bitcoin was supposed to be. I remember years ago, I should probably find this reference somewhere. This was probably 2015 when a lot of the block size lunacy was happening. Somebody shared a article, an academic article that was first line was essentially um, it's uh, an established fact that blockchains cannot scale. And then the whole article was some boring academic 
nonsense based on the common known assumption in the academic literature that blockchains can't scale. So it's like that, that level of sorting through that propaganda or just confusion, whatever it is, is very difficult to do. I think a lot of it just, uh, and this, this definitely, I think, you know, informs a lot of our views as investors. Uh, a lot of it, I think, just stems from sort of an aversion to uncertainty. Um, and, you know, all these concerns about what can go wrong. It's not to say that it literally can't go wrong. Um, you know, I just think people are sort of, and I think we, you know, you can experience this politically in terms of like, what if there was no, what if there were no police? Um, you know, the possibility of something going wrong I think is sort of too much for most people to handle. Uh, they would rather have something that was like sort of a economically unjustified solution to a potential problem than accept that that problem could exist even if there was not an economic reason to expect that problem to come to the forefront. Yeah, and there's a whole other dimension too, which is people are viewing potential problems with their with their own personal lens of how they think the world works and what their expertise is. So in the domain of Bitcoin, you got a bunch of people that are more technically minded, um, which can be great, but it can also result in really big holes in your understanding of the world. So if there is a, if there is a potential problem and there isn't a technical solution, then technical minds might think, oh no, Bitcoin is broken. We have to do something. We have to change the code. It's not going to work. The part of the difficulty is in Bitcoin, if there are problems, there can be economic solutions, business solutions, real world solutions, human solutions, where it might be that zero conf is actually not 100% technically reliable. And that's perfectly fine because you have payment processors that take up that 0.1% risk and it's no issue. And so if you have people that only are good on the technical details like we've seen in, in Bitcoin core, they can totally overlook this, this much larger world of, of like how businesses actually operate in the world, real world, which is, which BCH was better on. I think they're worse now, especially after the, the BSV split. I definitely feel like the BSV philosophy and the, uh, and the general culture seems to embrace that idea a lot more explicitly. I still yeah, think that, there's a lot of big issues with uncertainty, even in BSV. I mean, I'm looking at this sort of quote unquote pruning debate, which feels like maybe it's, I don't think it's, you know, a debate on the same scale, you know, even close to the same scale as like a block size debate, but I still see it as the same thing. It's like, um, you know, because pruning is technically possible, there's a huge amount of concern about it. Um, and people are, I just don't think comfortable living in a world where they don't know exactly like what is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And with that one too, like play out the implications of, of the blocks becoming very large. Um, and let's say they're not pruned. Is the, is the concern that nobody at all will be running nodes? Like there will be, you can't, it's actually impossible to access the network for anybody. I just think that's totally implausible. Even if it was bloated and really expensive to run, you're still going to have some economic actors, which means the system is still going to continue. 
So I'm, right. I'm, glad we, I'm glad we went down this path because this is right where I find the most interesting conversations. And I think most of the conversations we have on our little numpties show here are in this vein. And we, and we get a lot of people uh, who get mad about it, who are like, why are you talking about, you know, um, so, somebody, I think it was somebody who was interviewing TK and was like, well, I would feel better if instead of, you know, Isaac and Steven Derrick saying that they think that BSV has a higher probability of success, if they would, if they understood it properly, they would say they know it's going to succeed. And I'm like, <laughs> no, everything is. And, and I think BSV people, they get really sensitive if you talk about unknowns and risk in BSV, which it's there. It's unknown and it's risk, but it doesn't mean on the opposite side, I think BTC people in particular are completely hoodwinked by two things, anchor uh, status quo bias. So like this is what is, therefore it's inherently better than anything else that's proposed, which is weird because BSV is more the original status quo, so to speak, but um, they've sort of been hoodwinked into believing this one megabyte is, this is the status quo, anything else is a dangerous deviation. But then what Robert knows it called the Nirvana fallacy. So when you, when you talk about BSV and scaling the blocks and all this stuff, well, I can foresee a future when things are humongous where I, I can imagine all these unknown risks. And those are gen, genuine unknown risks. They're worth talking about. Or I can imagine the risk of something we talk about, uh, the risk of N-chain or patents or Craig Wright's lawsuits. These are actual, to me, uncertainties in BSV that are worth talking about. But if you're going to say those uncertainties exist, therefore BSV is not a good idea, compared to what? We, we know for a fact that BTC cannot scale. That is guaranteed to not work. So like we understand that it can't work. Why would you then say, well, this other thing might not work. Therefore, we should throw it out in favor of the thing that we know won't work, right? So like we're talking about probabilities. The probability that you can scale anything with BTC is damn near zero unless some miracle happens with, you know, lightning and liquid and all this bullshit. With BSV, the probability that it screws up I don't know what it is. It's 50%, 40%, 30%. It could have things that, that derail it. But the known is like we know that, that the status quo doesn't work. And I mean, to your point, it's similar with, you know, government policing or whatever, when people are like, well, but if you didn't have that, what if you had something I can imagine? And it's like, yeah, that might exist. But right now, we literally have an absolute disaster of a hellhole that's provable. You know what I mean? So I just find that to be like, I want to talk in that space. I want to talk probabilistically about risk. And that's what I find so refreshing about your book and your approach. It's very hard headed. Like, here's why compared to the app, actual existing alternatives, we think BSV is the lowest risk and the highest reward. Doesn't mean that we're going to be 100% right. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't treat any of our, our investments as if they're a guarantee um, but given everything else that we see out there, we think this has the best odds. And that's where the best conversations happen in my mind. Yeah. And I think our fund in particular is very focused on probabilistic bet making because both Jack and Zach have a poker background. So we're largely informed by that, even sometimes in like very like formal, in a formal sense. Um, and I think it's, it doesn't, it yields results sometimes that confuse people that aren't thinking that way. So we'll make, you know, some small trade that ends up not working out for us. But after the fact, we're like, we're glad we made that trade. That was the right trade. It was high EV and it didn't work out, but it was a, it was a good trade to make. Um, so if you're not thinking that way and you just want, you know, guaranteed returns, well, you're, you might find a guaranteed return uh, option and it's going to be a scam. And <laughs> if, if you want some upside, you got to take some risk. So thinking about that um, is essential for anyone that's making investments in the space.
TK, were you trying to say something like five minutes ago? Well, you know, I, I, I have a good sense of what made you guys curious enough to begin investigating BSV, you know, similar to the, the BCH journey. You hear a lot of people talking a lot of smack. I have a sense of who you spoke with that made you say, hey, look, this is more than just a kind of a CSW cult. There's actually some substance here. But what's one or two things you saw that got you excited about BSV? You know, like, and, and, and what, what makes you excited now enough to, to put up with all these uncertainties and risk? The one big thing that came to mind was that first night at that BSV meetup, I went in there kind of thinking, this is going to be an argument, or insofar as I'm going to debate people here, it's going to be an argument about which Bitcoin is best or which money is best. And the competitors to Bitcoin are going to be gold or to Bitcoin SP are going to be Bitcoin Cash or BTC or gold. And I got there and they were talking about AWS, right? So I was like, oh, okay, you guys see your competition as the internet and storage and the cloud. And that just totally caught me off guard. And it was just such a moment where I just, I came with like ready to argue. And I instantly was, that was diffused. And I was like, okay, it's time to listen because this is not what I expected whatsoever. Let's talk about the risks of BSV. What, what do you guys see as the biggest unknowns or the biggest risks or threats um, to BSV? What are the things that you pay close attention to uh, and, you know, are, are, worry about? I think uh, there's sort of two main things for me. One is like, you know, sort of regulatory barriers that could emerge that make it really difficult uh, for BSV to, or really probably any crypto, I don't think there would be regulation that like targeted BSV specifically, but just in general regulation, I think is a risk. And then the other thing is just like adoption. Um, you know, I think BSV is probably the best bet in crypto by a long shot and one of the best bets in the world right now. But I think also one of the best bets in the world right now is like being short Ethereum. Like I, I you know, like there's a good chance that all this stuff just doesn't really catch on. And I think that, you know, we've, we put a lot of thought into how is BSV going to be used and when will it be useful? Like what has to happen for it to be useful for things X, Y, and Z. And, you know, the truth is the sort of real world competition is very, very good in a lot of ways. Like Dave just mentioned AWS as a competitor. AWS is an amazing service. Um, Bitcoin would not exist in the way it does today without AWS. And so, you know, just because I think Bitcoin has sort of theoretical advantages from like sort of a network topology standpoint and, you know, because it's a more efficient payment system uh, such that I think it, there, there's a clear path towards it sort of reshaping the way the internet uh, operates. I don't think there's a guarantee that we get there just because so much capital is pouring into alternatives. And until that capital pours into BSV, I think it's just gonna be hard for like a really small group of people to, you know, ballot out for, you know, decades as other technologies are, you know, getting better and better over time. And so I do think that there's an urgency in terms of adoption where, you know, I, I obviously think it's a probability that BSV will be successful in some way because I think it has so many sort of clear advantages over existing technologies, but you have to actually get there. And I don't think it's a guarantee that we get there. 
Man, that's such a that's such a powerful point that uh, I think Jack uh, Lou, who we talked to previously, is is one of the people that thinks this way and gets it uh, on the consumer app side. I don't know as much on the enterprise side, but that I've seen. It's like once, so, sort of once you see what BSV is capable of, you can't unsee it, and you and it's easy to sort of fall down the uh, being enamored with the tech and the possibilities and forget that people don't give a shit about that if it's not a better user experience. And so the question should always like be in, in the forefront of your mind. Like as a business owner, uh, we use AWS, my company does, and I've literally never had a problem with it. I love it. I think it's freaking awesome. If somebody just comes to me and tells me why theoretically, oh, AWS is a dinosaur. You know, I remember people used to do this all the time. So, I mean, tech guys do this all the time. Whatever software you're using, they have some reason why you're a troglodyte for using it if you only understood. And I'm like, but it freaking works, right? Like when it comes to crypto, um, I think like user interface, Robinhood is the best app I have ever found to buy anything. And like, if, if I'm just a normal person, I don't care that it's custodial, that I'm not even holding coins. And it's this beautiful experience, right? I like PayPal. What's wrong with PayPal? You're going to have to give me a user experience, not just a technical backend that is superior, not just as good as, right? And like some of these discussions about oh, micropayments will make everything better because it's proof of work and everybody... Maybe, but like, like I had a debate with a guy about uh, like subscription services, Substack and whatever. He's like, well, why would you pay a monthly fee for a Substack newsletter? And you could just pay per, you know, per email that you want to read or per word. Or per... And I'm like, micropayments don't solve everything inherently. User, like as a user, I don't want to pay per movie I watch on Netflix or per minute watched. I just want to pay a flat monthly fee and never have to think about it again, right? I want that user experience, like getting in the head of the user is so, so important, whether it's enterprise or consumer, rather than just like talking about how the technology is so backward. So I think that's a, that's a great point. I think it's true though that, so maybe you don't want to pay per movie, you'd rather just pay monthly and have access to Netflix. But I do think if you view it that way, you're viewing it in a vacuum where micropayments only affects how you pay for the service. And it would come with all these other features, right? So like one thing that I think a lot about is I hate being on like team Netflix and rooting for them to keep my favorite shows and, oh no, they lost Always Sunny, this sucks. And I'm like rooting for this corporation to like outbid Hulu, right? And it's just this kind of absurd system. Um, so I think like, and I do this a lot talking with my girlfriend or my family, just trying to, trying to articulate the BSV vision. And they'll say things like, well, I don't want to pay individually. Um, but when I kind of articulate the broader scope of, okay, well imagine if everything's accessible and it's a trivial fee and then, they start to uh, they start to come around, and I think it's difficult because there's going to have to be a, implementing these things. It's not like you can just flip a switch and everything changes. So yep. it's a process, um, and how that process plays out remains to be seen. But I mean, that's that wedge. Like, find what people don't like about Netflix and be like, right. we can solve that for you instead of like, hey, guess what? You can pay a hundred times a month instead of once a month. Like, nobody's mad about that right now. Maybe, maybe later, but you got to find something that they are mad about. Aren't you mad that like Netflix shows can just be get pulled without you, you have no power and sometimes they're not there in the selection. Like, you know, you got to find that wedge. That's like a felt problem. Um, and I just think that's a really important, a really important insight that sometimes the more technically minded can, can not sort of, you don't want to look at the market and say, Oh, this is the market's telling me this. So let's just duplicate what already exists. But you also don't want to say the market's stupid. Customers make bad decisions. You know what I mean? Like you got to learn yeah. from the, the, the customer as well to some degree. 
Hey guys, let's talk about some of these adoption risks. You, you named two, adoption and regulation. Um, I, I love for you to address your own expressed concern about those things. Concern might be a strong word, I know. But what does BSV need to do in order to actually get that adoption? Are you seeing anything happening in this space right now that looks promising um, uh, in, in terms of getting us there? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, so something I was talking about with someone yesterday is the idea that you know, the people who are in BSV today, I don't think are necessarily here because they're so, you know, creative. Um, I don't think that's necessarily one of the skills that gets you over here. And so I think one thing that gives me a lot of optimism is the advancements in infrastructure, which, you know, so, you know, what does BSV need? It needs adoption. How does it get adoption? It does something extremely useful that no one else is doing. And so what that, there's kind of two, I guess, like main things that that could be. One is you're doing something that is already being done way better, or you're doing something new. Doing something that's already being done way better, I think will take a while, um, because a lot of that is sort of network dependent. Uh, you know, I think BSV sort of, it has an extreme network effect, which works both ways. You know, long-term, it's sort of a way of ensuring continued success, but in the short term, it's a barrier because it's so dependent on the network being established. You know, it's a, you know, it's a classic chicken egg uh, problem for investors, or sorry, for entrepreneurs. Um, okay, where, where am I? So what I think is great about the advances in infrastructure, I think infrastructure is like the sort of natural place for money and time to be going right now in BSV. That's been our strategy, and I think that's most people's strategy more or less. Um, and I think that as that continues to improve and building things on BSV gets easier and easier, the likelihood each subsequent day that someone will do something very creative and new increases because the cost of putting that idea into action is going down over time. Uh, so to me, we're already on the right path. It doesn't take any kind of grand coordination. Right now, the money and the time is going in infrastructure, and I think that's right. Uh, and Ultimately, I think that will mean that more creative people who have the ability to see something that BSV can do um, that's new will come into the space or maybe are already in the space or can put their idea out in the world. And that process is getting easier over time. I saw this tweet, uh, Jack, that you had. Uh, there was a Cointelegraph article about um, how, how to get enterprise to adopt Bitcoin and like, these are the seven things you need to do. And I, and I scanned the article and you tweeted like, wow, this is just a like incredible misunderstanding of how enterprise works and how Bitcoin works. Uh, what, what was wrong with that article? How do you think about enterprise and Bitcoin? Oh uh, man, I can't even remember what the article said at this point. It was very forgettable. Um, <laughs> you know, in terms of enterprises have, they have budget and, you know, the ability to sort of experiment, but any kind of like big enterprise application is, you know, it's a huge risk. And I think the way that enterprises are structured, it's not necessarily conducive to taking huge risks. Um, and so I think it's going to be hard for, things just have to be really obvious, like an obvious win, I think for enterprise adoption to happen. Uh, and, you know, we're working towards that independently because we do think that, 
that's sort of the fastest way of establishing like a network of users is to get. So you would say enterprise is a more powerful strategy than consumer first. Um, not necessarily. Uh, but I would, what I would say is that it's a worthy goal. Um, because if you can get enterprise usage, one, I think it's a good way to get a lot of investment in the space. And two, I think that depending on the enterprise application, uh, you might be able to attract a much, like a very large network all at once, which is really kind of key in terms of establishing a network. Because if you're attracting users one at a time, but they're all dependent on the network, um, you know, this is sort of the issue that people run into where the experience just isn't that good until you have a lot of people. And so the rate at which you're attracting people and losing people is such that like, you're not really ever going to get to a critical mass. I don't think that's like a, you know, sort of a inherent problem with Bitcoin SV. Um, but I do think that one way of sort of like, imagine if like Facebook uh, adopted Bitcoin SV and Bitcoin SV payments were on Facebook, that would be a really, you know, nice way of getting like about a billion users um, into the BSV ecosystem. I don't think it's very likely for a while, but if you can, even on a smaller scale, I think doing that is really great. And also from an infrastructure sort of development standpoint, even if it's not a lot of individuals who are using it, if you can get you know, a, a big increase in the usage, um, I think that that kind of revenue will be really helpful in terms of miners taking the next step, other, provider, other infrastructure service providers taking the next step. So I think it's, a, you know, it's an important thing to be working on, even if maybe I would lean towards some sort of, sort of a user-oriented application or individual-oriented application being what is more likely to be sort of the first large-scale application on Bitcoin. What, what percent of your, in, you know, your approach to investing in BSV, like what percent of that is banking on the, the coin itself dramatically increasing in value? Like in other words, do you see you see a world where like, oh, BSV, the price itself isn't that high, but this is, this is incredibly valuable ecosystem. Or is it like, no, 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 the price is going to skyrocket. And that's why, you know, that's why Unbounded is such a great place to invest because we're, you know, we're funding these things on top of it. And those are going to drive the price up. And the, the more, you know, the price goes up, the richer we are because we're holding a lot of it. You know what I mean? Like, how, mm-hmm. how do you balance that? Like, I, I think that those are those are both interesting approaches and you kind of have the extreme just hold and make the price go up on BTC. And then maybe some other coins are more about, you know, forget the price for, you know, maybe inflationary coins primarily, but I've just, I've heard people debate that on BSV as well. I, I think it's unlikely that the network will prove itself very valuable and the coin won't appreciate. I mean, we've already seen there's appetite for speculation in cryptocurrency. Um, so I think, you know, the way that I envision this playing out is that BSV just becomes unavoidable and the obvious most valuable useful network. Um, so when that happens and when that kind of bubble pops around a BSV is this scammy garbage coin, um, I think a lot of capital will flow into it. Um, and I think it does impact our investment decision just because when we make an investment, so as Jack said, you know, we're a hybrid fund. So when we make a, an investment into an infrastructure company, we're weighing that not against a cash position, but also against Bitcoin SV. So trying to imagine the order of operations there is very important for us to handle this money properly. 
Um, but yeah, it seems to me unlikely that, I mean, like you have EHR data or the other big enterprises that are effectively using this network and generating tons of transactions and empirically proving all of these uh, impossibilities incorrect. And the, the coin itself isn't appreciating quite a bit. Well, what's this thing? So I keep hearing about, well, maybe just in, in a few places, but this idea of contracts with miners that are paying them in fiat to process transactions and this sort of potential future where the token itself is essentially not really a valuable thing because all the, all the payments are happening sort of in dollars. It's just used to, I don't know exactly the technical stuff of it, but I've heard some mm -hmm. people with uh, some of this tall, the things that tall mining is doing talking about this. Uh, do, do you have any insights on that? Yeah, I think it, it just comes down to like the order in which things happen. You know, I don't think there's any way that BSV is successful where BSV, the asset um, doesn't appreciate on the way. That being said, I also don't think BSV is necessary to the system. Um, that being said, I also think BSV will be, in a lot of ways, the best currency that you could use on the system. Being the best doesn't guarantee that you will win. Um, but I think all those things are true. So, you know, I think it's a good thing that BSV is not necessary to use the system uh, because I do think that at least for a time and potentially for a very long time, there will be a lot of companies or even individuals who would prefer not to have to deal with owning BSV and just be able to pay in the way that they're accustomed to paying for things to be able to use the BSV ledger. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I have, I have my own views on like the Fed and money printing and those sorts of things. I think a lot of the sort of, I guess like mainstream libertarian view on those things is sort of flawed. That being said, I still think that free market money will be better than government money and that BSV will be the best free market money. And so I'm fairly optimistic that uh, if BSV is successful, then BSV will become sort of a dominant money across the world, in which case I think it would be very valuable. It's kind of a funny way to, to kind of get back into digital gold, right? So if you imagine a future where BSV is this massive network, it's essentially the internet and governments are tokenizing and issuing their currency on top of it. Well, then you still have BSV, the asset that would be, you know, something that you could invest in. And would BSV be like a more sound money option than tokenized USD on BSV? It's likely. So it's kind of this funny thing where there's a lot of talk about digital gold. And I think most of that is, is uh, kind of short-sighted and mistaken. But in the future of Bitcoin at scale that I imagine, it does have some component of digital gold and it would be a very attractive, hard, sound money. You sound like you're saying almost the opposite of Daniel Krawitz, which we had on uh, a while ago. Where he's basically saying, hey, look, to, to make BSV work, it's all about people earning BSV specifically and trying to earn trying to acquire BSV and this idea that yeah, BSV doesn't matter. It's this network. And if people are everything they're doing with it, they're just paying each other in dollars. Um, if I'm, if I'm understanding him and you correctly, those are almost kind of like opposite, opposite approaches. So well, talk I, about I don't, I don't think so. Free world where you're not the network, but not the coin. I think it just comes down to like probabilities. 
you know, I don't think BSV is necessary, but I still think that like, like Daniel says, if you have the vision that we have, you want to be working to acquire BSV. You know, that, and that is what, you know, Dave and I are doing at Unbounded Capital. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't think there's, I don't think we necessarily see things differently than Daniel. I don't think yeah. there's any way realistically that the BSV network could be successful and the token not appreciate in value. There's no way you could hide that little secret from, uh, from any investors. Cause even if, mm. I mean, like if you had the network and then it's somehow it were divorced from the token and then the network on that network, you just so happen to create a new token with all of these properties that would make traditionally sound money. People would go, Oh my gosh, this is the most amazing invention ever. Everybody has to hold on to this, uh, this currency because it's got all these wonderful properties. So I don't think at this way there's, at this point, I don't think there's any way to have the network succeed and not have speculators rush into that asset. And it would yeah, also be hugely valuable because it would buy you space on chain to do whatever you can do on chain at that point. So yeah, I, I think it's a very theoretical kind of academic discussion to talk about, you know, could Bitcoin SB take over the world and uh, we're using tokenized USD on top of it. Um, it seems more likely that we're using Bitcoin on Bitcoin. I do think like that there is sort of a fallacy I think that happens where people say like, oh, you, you know, how are you going to pay for your on-chain uh, data without BSV? It's like, all right, yes, that might be the best way to pay for it, but you know, you can just buy it when you need it. Um, and yeah, so I think people maybe sometimes have this mentality that like, you better buy your BSV now or else you're never gonna be able to use Bitcoin. And yeah. that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I mean, it, if miners have the option to pay with fiat, then you can, then it would be trivially easy for them to put stuff on chain for you with fiat. I mean, that's a no brainer. Yeah, I think what is even more certain than, you know, BSV being like the long-term sort of asset of choice on BSV is that if you know BSV is successful, it will be extremely efficient to like shift between these different you know uh, forms of money. That seems like a, you know a total inevitability if yeah. Bitcoin is successful. Jack, did I catch you taking some shots at CoinGeek on Twitter? Yeah, I think so, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so I love CoinGeek, but I think they're you know sometimes they're like. I think playing too much to the home crowd. Um, so I think it was a, it was a tweet about like CoinGeek oh, right. announcing a new YouTube show or something like that. And you said, if you're ripping off you guys. apps, uh, <laughs> you can, if you can't build apps, build uh, what was it? Build, I got, yeah. If you can't build apps, may as well build suspense. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> are, are you, uh, are, are you uh, sick of the hype machine? I guess. No, I love the hype machine. It keeps me going. So what, so what did you mean by that tweet? I'm trying to stir up trouble. You guys are entirely too reasonable. <laughs> uh, I just thought it was funny to like, in this space, put out like, oh, this video is coming out in nine days. <laughs> it's just like not <laughs> something that's done. So I thought it was hilarious. I don't know. I just wanted to share it. 
And so, well, I, I want to stir up trouble then. I yeah, feel like stir I, up trouble, I, Steve. I always am the, the trouble stirrer here and with the BSV discussions because I always see the elephant in the room, which is like you guys are an investment a group and you're trying to assess risks and Craig Wright exists. And every day the man gets crazier and the lawsuits get crazier. And I just watched an interview of him claiming that he personally issued all Bitcoin tokens mm-hmm. and that all of the tokens existed actually uh, at the very beginning and they don't come into existence. They were all personally issued by him with all of the appropriate legal uh, requirements. Uh, yeah. I look at that. I'm not. I'm not in your guys' position, but I go. Okay, that is um, odd, and this is a very influential figure in BSV who is in the court system right now, trying to play uh, uh, with the the law, try to get the government involved. Um, I see that as a as in my opinion the biggest risk by far of BSV is the whole Craig Wright thing. It's oh. Craig. It's Craig's coin. We're all just holding it for him. And yeah. What do you guys make of this? Give it back to well, me. Well, how much it. worse could sentiment get around Craig such that the price would have tomorrow? <laughs> so that's that's one question. But it's is not it's floor? not sentiment. It's whether or not he can push through some of these crazy ideas because. There are a lot of people who are still uh, very deferent to Craig and his and his ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. So, is Craig at a at a level of influence? Well, if, where, where he says, by the way, I think he was either listening to the Numpty Show or I just made a a, a correct <laughs> prediction in like January, where we were talking about potential ways the Satoshi coins might might move, or or in you know, could it be that you have an invalid transaction? that miners just say, okay, well, this is an invalid transaction. We're gonna add it to the network anyway. Or it might be that there's like an old bug in the code that allows you to move coins without the appropriate um, checks. And maybe they're gonna say, well, it's technically a valid transaction even though it's invalid because it's a bug. He actually used that example in an interview with Ryan Charles. And Ryan said, well, how might you get these, uh, how might government confiscate these coins? And those were the two examples he gave. One was essentially accepting an invalid transaction. The other was exploiting some of the old bugs that were in the software. I think the, the, my read of like the old bugs in the software was more just to say that like software is sort of inherently malleable. And what matters is, you know, sort of your, uh, I guess, legal or public consensus Regardless, um, you know, I think, I think Craig, so first of all, you know, I'll, I'll come clean and say that I think what Greg is doing is great. I'm very sympathetic to basically, you know, the majority of Craig's actions. I, I think it's very likely that Craig is Satoshi and, you know, I, I just think he's right about a lot of things. I, I like Craig a lot. Um, so maybe that just colors my perception of what's happening. I will say that I think when Craig comes out and says something along the lines of like, oh, that I own the database or I issued all the coins. From what I know about him, I think right now he's spending a lot of time trying to sort of figure out how laws apply to Bitcoin. I don't think that this was necessarily something that, you know, if he's Satoshi, did he know that about Bitcoin on day one? I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, I think we're all trying to learn about Bitcoin and I don't think Craig is, you know, an exception to that. And so when I hear something like that, to me, what's, it's not so important that he's saying it. It's more important, like, is this true or not, you know, in the like, legal sense? Because I think that will be what's sort of consequential to me is what does it mean if 
Craig owns the database, you know, if that happens. Um, and then, you know, as a fund, we just sort of have to prepare for what would happen in that, that outcome. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, like we, it doesn't seem likely enough that that's going to happen in the very, very near future, such that, you know, I have my opinion like formulated on, is that good for me? Is that not good for me? Is that good for inbound capital? Who's yeah. that good for? Who's that not good for? I'm just we were just talking yet. about that on the, on the last show that you, you have to, it seems like you implicitly have to have some legal theory when you're trying to analyze BSV, which includes Craig Wright and his antics. You, you kind of have to take a position. Is what he's saying legally plausible or legally uh, implausible? I, I personally hate the fact that you have to have those analyses because I'm not a legal expert, and so I'm just kind of flying by, my, by the seat of my pants here. Because um, unfortunately, it seems to be a, it probably is going to be a big deal whether or not it is true that Craig owns the database or whether or not he doesn't. <laughs> I, I think you're kind of lost in the weeds, though, to be honest. Okay. So I mentioned that. Steve, the, we're, we're cornered now. We got, we got three believers <laughs> cornering us here. But the, here's a useful heuristic. So I mentioned that um, politics in 2016 kind of prepared me for my crypto journey. And one very useful heuristic from Peter Thiel, actually, for navigating politics that helped me see things more clearly was he said, in regards to Trump, he said, take what he says seriously, not literally. And once I clicked that into my brain, everything just made more sense about Trump. And I just, I was, you know, making wrong predictions less frequently. So I, I kind of use that same heuristic for Craig, who I think actually in many ways is very Trump-like, which is mm -hmm. a piece that I wanted to write once upon a time. Maybe, maybe I will at some point. But oftentimes I take what he says seriously and not literally. And I stay kind of zoomed out. And like Jackson said, like, what would this mean if he did on the database? Or, you know, kind of follow what he's saying directionally and not get lost in the specifics and, and not try to use my you know, I don't have a legal background, so not try to use my background or, or my time to figure out if this is exactly true per the letter of the law. And a lot of what he's, a lot of these claims he's making are just legal claims that haven't been, you know, to my knowledge, they haven't, there's no precedent yet. So he's, we'll see what ends up being true. Um, but Do you prefer private property, Steve? <laughs> Say what? Don't you prefer private property? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> uh, well, so, so on that uh, one point, I, I agree that I like the idea of taking what he says seriously, but not literally. I think that's fair. And one of the things I've enjoyed in the conversation with the numpties is uh, I, I, they have consistently brought up to my uh, helping me learn that where you should focus is on where the actual technology is. Like if you just take out the rhetoric and you actually look on the ground, how is the technology progressing? How is it built? How is Genesis structured? How is the industry forming? What is the culture like? It's great. It's like everything is right in terms of the things that are, at, are being done. The rhetoric is very um, disturbing. But if you guys, you mentioned, one of you mentioned earlier, this idea of, uh, I think, I don't know if the term credibility came up, but the, the legitimacy of the BSV network being a important part of people using it, as at some point it has to be legitimate. Do you see the, the drama and the rhetoric and the Trumpism of Craig being a liability for the credibility for maybe a long time of BSV? I think, 
It could be, but I think people just tend to, I think perception will change as, you know, are these the actions of like a loser or the actions of a winner? Um, That's so Trumpist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, I just don't think, you know, it's like if, if Calvin and Craig are like, let's say the richest men in the world and their sort of antics have culminated in success. I just think they'll be very, viewed very differently than the way they are viewed now. And I think people will be much more open to working with them. But I mean, I do think today, like the antics, they're a barrier, but I also, you know, they're part of a package. And I don't know all the details of how those antics are playing into the package. But overall, like Craig and Calvin, I think have had an absolutely you know, transformative effect on BSV. So any sort of downside of the annex is hugely outweighed by, mm. you know, the investment and contribution uh, of those two. And what also, do you, the, what do you see the in downside of the, go ahead, Dave, the downside of the antics selfishly for us is great because, because yeah. they're so aesthetically <laughs> abrasive. A lot of people haven't dug deeper into it. And so we got to, you know, buy $50 BSV, Everybody was dealing. Yeah. So, what's your what's your earlier point that you know you can't you can't just see a long sustained ten year battle of these tiny communities trying to grow. At some point, there has to be a more rapid. You know, some people have to catch on at some point, right? You can't be the uh, you can't be the contrarians forever if you want to have the big returns. And so, to attract you know institutional investment or enterprise. Um, when is it like, okay, this is fun. The price has been artificially suppressed because of antics to, okay, this is a problem. The antics are so outsized that the market, the market listens to antics sometimes more than technicals like that. That's a real thing. So do you see that as problematic? I could see it becoming problematic. Um, you know, right now I think we have enough momentum that it's not a big deal. I think if we're in the same spot in two or five years, then we could see talented people just seek greener pastures. I think that's a problem. But I think, uh, you know, the incentive, depending on like your level of confidence about the future, like your incentive in the present changes. And you know, if you look at like, what, what would your incentive be if you had $10 billion of one asset that you thought would become worthless? And you could acquire an asset that you thought would become extremely valuable, you know, but there were only $3 billion worth of that asset. You know, you wouldn't necessarily want to like, you could do it in a way, or I mean, let's say, obviously I'm talking about Craig and potentially being in that situation, you could potentially blow your load too early per se and crash the price or dramatically decrease the price of the thing you're trying to sell into the thing that's more valuable and dramatically increase the price of the thing that's more valuable and therefore get less of it. Um, so I'm not surprised. It it never surprises me that to a certain degree, Craig is like leaning into his image as like a madman that to me, it's, it's a very sort of logical strategy. If you have, particularly if you have some kind of time constraint, which through the court case, like we've sort of started to see what that might be in terms of, you can only start doing things at a certain time. Um, then there's a pretty strong incentive to like keep the thing that's less valuable, more valuable and keep the thing that's more valuable, less valuable. Um, as long as you don't kill it, you know, through doing that. 
when you're when you're raising your fund or let's say talking to entrepreneurs that you know potentially you would invest in and they're thinking they're they're thinking about building on bsv or building on ethereum whatever else um or just people in silicon valley in general other people from other funds do people bring up when you talk about bsv do they bring up craig wright and Enchain? i think definitely yeah um you know honestly like most of the people that we're talking to as potential investors in unbanded capital don't know anything about Craig Wright. Um, and from our, from our vantage point, like the presence of Craig Wright, even as like sort of a possible Satoshi, even as a 10% Satoshi is a huge like opportunity as an investor that I think a lot of people see. Um, so yeah, you know, for, for us, like the presence of Craig, tends to be a positive other than, you know, maybe we could get investment from people who are already inside of crypto at a greater rate if Craig had different sorts of behaviors. But, you know, those, what are you going to do with those people? Like, I don't know. It's, it's fine. <laughs> I'll live with it. So, so what do you see about some of the other like sort of adjacent risks and, and the, you know, sort of the mainstream uh, criticisms you might hear from BTC people or BCH people. Um, well, look, it's basically one company that owns the whole thing. The Enchain, all the developers are funded by them. All the mining is done by, basically Calvin Air's name is on like 90% of this thing. Isn't that a centralized coin? Isn't that a risk surface? Let's say Calvin Air, I don't know, decides he's done with BSV or goes to prison or dies or, <laughs> or something like, is that a risk because you have basically it's one person's project It's sort of the critique, the simplified version of the critique. How do you guys view that? Do you view a lack of other large, you know, uh, investors, miners, whatever on BSV and such a dominant position by Kelvin more or less? Um, do you view that as problematic? Well, the funny thing is that it's just not true, first of all. And like pretty uh, publicly, Binance has been one of the largest miners on BSV lately, which is Binance pool. It's not like CZ personally, but um, so it is, you know, much more decentralized than people like to like to admit uh, from outside of BSV. Um, in terms of development, I mean, I think clearly Enchain is doing quite a bit. CoinGeek is doing quite a bit. And if they were to, you know, disappear tomorrow, I think that would be bad for the space. Um, that, you know, a big part of our bet is that that is getting less true day by day and on a relatively quick time horizon. I think that will be much less true. Um, and so it really just comes down to competition. And so if you believe that this is going to be a competitive network and the incentives are set up such that it, you know, incentivizes competition, um, I, I don't think it's a huge concern. And I think a big part of it comes down to a fundamental misunderstanding of decentralization, uh, decentralization kind of as a meme and the value that that brings to the network and people that will make claims about, oh, well, you know, N-Chain is so centralized, it kind of runs your network. They don't seem as concerned about Bitcoin Core or Blockstream or these other, you know, when I entered the space, a big thinker that was influencing me generally was Nassim Taleb. And I remember being really excited about crypto, but very concerned that it seems like very a very fragile system with these developers tinkering on the protocol. And I kind of like 
ignored that when the price of Bitcoin went from 3000 to 20000 I was like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> you know, it, it's worked itself out. But uh, that should be a concern for anybody that, you know, is of Taleb's mindset. And I think Bitcoin SV is a much more sound approach to that by having developer teams in competition than BTC, which has, de- you know, a developer team that's looking for community development funding. And it's, uh, it's not a, a very robust system. Well, and that, that's you, where BCH shit the bed, in my opinion, too. I mean, that's where they really said loudly to me, we are just utterly inferior to BSV, not just for <laughs> a lot of small reasons, but like, it's just like a very, like one developer crew that literally is in control of the whole thing and just bitches all the time. It just seemed like such a bad, um, well, such a bad situation that they, they could, I felt like BCH with the backing of Roger and Bitcoin.com and that, they had a lot of things going for them. Like there's no reason why BCH shouldn't have beaten BSV if you just look at like the basics, but uh, just fundamentally went the wrong direction. They, they picked the wrong set of problems with BTC. They, I mean, part of them, the, the, the block size was a legit problem. But then they, they looked at some other things that I see as problems with BTC and were like, no, these are good things we actually want to emulate about BTC. We want to continue these. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. Yeah, it seems strange. I mean, there's a lot of economists in this space and oftentimes I hear them, their logic is, well, the developers have the incentive to make the network better because they own a lot of it, but they just ignore the existence of collective action problems. And it's like, so 101, um, you know, if you have development teams in competition, shouldn't that just obviously yield a better outcome and not hope that someone, you know, comes up with the right BIP and, and improves the network and makes this all wealthy. What do you mean when there are d- developer teams in, in competition on, in BSV? So the node development teams. So Enchain or different mining pools that are, are developing node software to outcompete others. I think that's superior to open source um, node development. So I, I don't know any of the, of the details of, I, I thought there was one main node implementation and that would like dominated the market. Is that not the case? I think currently that is the case. And Jack, you might, you might know more about the details on this, but I think currently that is the case, but the long-term vision and just the underlying ethos is that this is going to be a more competitive ecosystem than uh, what I'm hearing from other, other Bitcoin mm-hmm. forms. Is there yeah, I mean, something I- about, BSV that makes that more likely rather than just a stated preference? I just think uh, it, it just has to do with, you know, how much money is coming into miners, how much incentive is there for an Amazon or, you know, whatever other company to come into this space and engage in mining and potentially try and get an edge through creating their own software instead of, you know, some other type of edge, which I think is also possible. And I mean, I, get, I think it gets the point of like the risks of centralization, um, not sort of inherent risks, but I do think Craig and Calvin represent like sort of the top of the Pareto distribution in terms of output, you know, one more so from a capital perspective and the other from a, uh, you know, kind of like intellectual contribution, IP contribution, whether that's a contribution or you know, a detraction, whatever, those sorts of things. Um, these guys are producing a lot. And so obviously if they died, you know, let's imagine that the Quinky conference got like sucked into a black hole and everyone there was dead. I think BSV would be done. Um, so, so in that sense, like there is some fragility today with the amount of knowledge and sort of talent that's concentrated 
into certain individuals. But yeah, I think the, the antidote is really just more incentive for other talented individuals to you know, enter. And that comes both from like one knowledge, but also just how big is the opportunity um, immediately? Is it a future opportunity? Is it a present opportunity? Like I, you know, I think even if Amazon, let's say, was totally like hip to BSV and knew everything about it, I don't think they're necessarily like working on their own node software yet. They might just say like, all right, well, we'll just come, we'll come in with our trillion or so dollars of capital um, in five years, like when this thing is actually taking off and we'll just crush and chain that. You know, can they do that? Can they not do that? I don't know. But yeah, I, you know, the fact that there's a dominant node software today sort of represents the outsized contribution that Enchain um, and CoinGeek have made. But yeah, I don't think that that's and it's any hard sort to of guarantee for the future. It's hard to compete currently. I mean, Enchain just acquired Korea. They have this huge development team. I mean, they have much more capital than anybody else, but that that isn't resulting in a lack of competition. So you have very ambitious BSV people like Matterpool or some of these other mining pools that are, that are, you know, we're, they're, we're, they're going to outcompete Craig Wright. And that's, that's the goal. And I think um, that sentiment is actually pretty pervasive in the space. And a lot mm -hmm. of people um, are trying to beat Craig. So one of the things I liked about uh, BCH was that they were really explicit in having multiple node implementations where they were actually developing, uh, they were working on a block template that a lot, that, that made syncing up multiple developments uh, uh, node implementations that much easier. And I don't, I, I think that has now fallen through the cracks or, or it's gotten delayed in that development. That seems to be an explicit goal because they did learn the lessons from core. And so I just did, I, 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 I thought you were saying that there is at present multiple competing implementations well, um, in BSV, but, I, but I, I would say, I don't think that's actually essential right now. What matters is the quality of the software, not necessarily one metric of, is it decentralized or not right now? You got to also think at scale, like BSV is at all crypto is tiny compared to where it will be. Is it decentralized in 2020? It isn't actually as relevant is, are there any artificial barriers to entry and will it be decentralized in 2030? I actually think, so it's interesting that I do think BSV has a form of decentralization or at least, you know, it's holding on to a form of decentralization, which I think is really valuable, which is getting rid of the idea of like us. You know, I, I hate the idea of us. Um, like what, you know, the idea of, what makes BCH great is they made it a priority to have multiple competing node softwares. To me, that's like the wrong approach. And people who are worried about like, what are we all going to do about X? It's, you know, if X is a problem or if there's an opportunity in X, I think the idea should be something will come. And I don't know if people are, people tend not to be comfortable with that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still sort of just like annoyed about getting ratioed on my pruning tweet. Um, but I think it's a good example of like, even people who are sort of less concerned about the idea of pruning are saying like, well, yeah, I mean, like, it's not a big deal. We'll do this, you know, we'll do that. It's like, who's we? I'm not but, with you. Like, yeah. I am part of Unbanded Capital. I'm trying to like <laughs> invest in companies and do other things that 
we'll, we'll put out there in the future. But yeah, you know, I, if there's an opportunity, like I'll fill it if I can, and it, you can fill it if you can. We don't need to like, we don't necessarily need to talk about it. It's not that talking about it is bad. It's just that the mindset of we're going to do this. I think it's wrong. I, I think that's correct at scale. I think, um, especially when you don't have a protocol that is locked down or technically locked down or close to being locked down, um, it's a lot harder to avoid that, that way of thinking about things. So like if you have a lockdown protocol, yeah, you, that, that does allow for real decentralization um, of all, not just known implementations, but all kinds of ways that everybody can now use this technology. But before you reach that point, uh, which maybe it has been reached in BSV, I don't know. There is still a sense in which like the, the, the fundamentals are not solid enough for there to be a totally different vision about what the protocol of BCH should be. Like you can't, you actually have to work together to, to, to come up with something like this block template idea. And that wasn't, that wasn't like some centrally planned thing of like ABC said, this is what we're going to do. And so that's what we're going to do. That was a more organic realization that people had like, Hey, it's going to be easier for competing implementations to work with one another, the actual developers, if they can come up with this program that makes it easier for them to cooperate. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think you, you do have to have the lockdown protocol before you get the luxury of just being totally independent, uh, uh, from each other. I don't know if I agree with that. So, I mean, for one, I think, you know, Bitcoin, I don't really think of it as like a software or even a protocol, just more of like an idea. And I think its success just depends on like how many people sort of have that idea and what idea does that, like what forms does that idea take? And so I think the idea of like a stable protocol is a good idea. Um, and I think that as people sort of understand the reasons why stability is valuable, you know, that I think will lead to success for those people. Um, that doesn't necessarily, I don't think it's necessary that protocols never change um, or desirable that protocols never change. I just think it's more about the idea that like stability has value and that tinkering and like development has like sort of an inherent potential downside. So, uh, what we saw with BTC is there was a, there were a lot of people, a lot of business minded folks who definitely saw stability as a, a, a virtue, you know, in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015. But because there was still technical disagreement and you had the, the keys to the GitHub owned by developers with a particular idea and other people had a different idea, the net result was still the network fracturing even though you did have a lot of people who, you know, we're probably all in agreement about the value of relative uh, stability of a protocol, not having the tinkering. I mean, tinkering has been criticized for a long time, but despite that, uh, we still had the, the BTC debacle, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, so I, I think, I think you, it requires some level of technical stability where you don't have to trust that the the people who are changing the code understand the vision correctly and like you have to agree with them uh with, with the with the developers still have a lot of power over the protocol um i don't think you can have as much independence as uh, as i i would like to see 
When you say technical stability, what do you mean? So this is like a technical solution to this problem that you imagine or what form? Yeah, yeah. so something like uh, the block size limit, you know, uh, would be a, a good example that the fact that you had a technical issue that was unresolved and the only people that could resolve it were developers, whether they were developers from one camp um, in BTC who had the keys to the GitHub, or there were a set of developers who had better ideas that didn't have the keys to that particular GitHub and they had to fork off. Um, that, require, that requires some kind of, yeah, technical solution. Like if, if, if it's still on the table for blocks to be determined by developers, you're not at the point of like independence from them. You're still part, your network is still heavily influenced by developers to the extent there are uh, technical limitations on the protocol. Well, I, I think this is, you're just identifying a problem that like is inherent. There is no solution. You can always make changes. In fact, I think it's interesting that you feel like this is such a problem and you're also criti very critical of like someone like a Craig saying I own this and so potentially like there's a legal framework, you know, obviously it's maybe not from like the ideal executor of legal frameworks, but there's a legal framework where you actually could, you know, because there's sort of like an inherent technical problem, you could maybe come up with some sort of other um, solution. But yeah, I, I just think that it's code, code can always be changed. Um, there's really no way around that. And so it's just a matter of like, who holds that idea at that time? And will those people be more or less successful over time? Um, but I, th I think there are, I think there are degrees of, there are degrees of difficulty or friction uh, or incentive changes that make things more or less stable, right? There's no 100% mm -hmm. stability or 100% lockdown. But for example, um, if you have no hard cap on block size and miners can mine whatever size blocks they want, going in and making a change, developers going in and saying, we're now going to add a cap and we're going to put a cap of eight mags or something like that. That is going to be a more difficult thing for them to do than if you have a cap to begin with, um, you know, try like because of status quo bias, because there's just the various incentives. So like each of these are not equal, even though none of them are set in stone. That's not like a, a, the ideal that's not actually achievable, but there are definite differences in levels of stability. So for example, if I'm a business, I can rely more on a blockchain that currently has a higher block limit or no block limit than if I'm building on one that currently is at one meg and I'm just hoping that developers raise it later, right? Because I can see sort of, they've already signaled that they want the bigger blocks and my belief in my confidence in that developers leaving that alone is gonna be higher than my confidence that developers are gonna proactively do something later. Yeah, so he, he, this is an even better example because this is ongoing rather than the block size, which is behind us. But the, uh, the reversion to the original difficulty adjustment algorithm that is a change, that's a technical change that has potentially large implications over the functionality of the network if it's done incorrectly and at the incorrect time, which means that we, uh, or, or the, the BSV industry, are not totally separate yet 
from the specific decision making of the developers at InChain. So if they, they could make a bad decision mm -hmm. and that affects everybody, they could make a good decision and that affects everybody. But we're still, when I, I guess what I'm trying to say is when that's over, when the difficulty adjustment is back to how it used to be, that is going to allow a, a new level of decentralization from the developers because there's not these big issues that we have to rely on them to sort out correctly. I think it, you rely on them just because it takes a lot of capital to do it. And there's really only one group who is in a position to be putting that much capital towards like node software today. So, so if, if was that not the case with Blockstream uh, raising a bunch of money financing devs in 2015? Uh, it was an issue. I mean, I think it will become a big issue for them. Yeah, but the so the the from from a if you're looking at how is the the system mm -hmm. structured, I think it would be a mistake to say that in 2015 the industry did not have a very tight connection to Blockstream developers that were employed by one company working on technical issues that affected everybody. I think it's the same, it would be the same type of error to think that anybody building in BSV right now is not still dependent on that, those important technical decisions from InChain. Now, fortunately, I think oh, they've yeah. made a lot of good decisions and we're closer to the point where they're gonna be less and less relevant, but we're not fully there yet. I agree. Although you do kind of already see signs of this. So people are frustrated with N-Chain over certain, like the amount of transactions you can chain together. There's like some cap on that. It's like 25 transactions or something like that. And people are, I mean, you see this on Twitter a lot. If you're on BSV Twitter, people like tagging shatters, like when is this going to go away? But it produces, it, that creates an opportunity. So if, if Matterpool or Tall are mining transactions without this limitation, then they're going to be more successful and maybe, you know, some service will route the transactions to this miner and they have an incentive to do so. So I think that, I think that's what's lacking in the BTC space when mining isn't really this competitive business. It's just, a, it's a hashing game. Well, one, one point on this, and then we can move on to another subject, but this was a, uh, this, the unchained transaction limits actually something that was in BCH as well. They've been dealing with the same problem and it's right. not quite so, straightforward to say that well if another node implementation fixes it then they're going to get their they're going to get business and outcompete in chain because there are significant risks to miners running uh implementation that is not the dominant implementation so mm -hmm. you may actually have better technical software but if you're not the majority software that's being run you have a higher risk of being forked off the network so whatever node implementation is the dominant implementation has a, uh, they have a, a really comfortable position because the costs of switching to another implementation are so much higher. That's what, that was one of the reasons why I liked this block template idea on, idea on BCH is specifically to reduce that cost to miners to run multiple right. I mean, implementations at the same this time. That's what we saw with uh, Bitcoin XT or, uh, you know, yeah. some of these other attempts in the past that it's, it's, Unfortunately, that the nature of the ecosystem, or fortunately, unfortunately, whatever it is, is just reality. It's not simply, hey, if you just go make a, a better version, a better implementation, then miners will just run it. Like there's a lot of dynamics at play. Um, so that's where Steve's, you know, reducing the friction 
of switching between implementations, for example, um, improves the incentive structure, I think, at least, you know, potentially. Um, Dave, I want to ask you something about this crazy, ridiculously entertaining court case down in Florida. You got, you got Craig being sued by the brother of, you know, uh, his former partner, Dave Kleiman. Uh, in this case, it's like, there's just always something new dropping that's just like wild and zany and absurd. And everything about this case is just bizarre and crazy. Do you think that this case is just irrelevant? It doesn't really matter. It's interesting. It's fun. Or do you think this is a big deal and something big is going to come out of this? I wouldn't say the case is irrelevant. I think who wins or loses the case isn't paramount for investors in BSV. I think, I mean, what happens if Craig wins is he, you know, he gets a lot more money than he otherwise would, uh, potentially, depending on what the, what the outcome would be if he lost. Um, I think the big story of this case is did Craig Wright invent Bitcoin? Um, and on that point, there isn't really much disagreement between either side. So the big impact that I see happening uh, from the actual resolution of the case is that bubble popping of people being like, well, everyone knows Craig is a scammer fraud and he's not worth listening to. I think he will, it will become clear that he's much more worth listening to at least um, when this is over. And I think, I mean, the reporting on it has been kind of crazy and there was more reporting on it initially from crypto media outlets. And the story was kind of, ha ha, Craig's being sued for stealing things. Isn't he such a fraud, right? And that's not a very uh, profound reading of the case since the fraud he's being, that's being alleged is that he was Satoshi and he stole the other half of Satoshi's uh, coins and IP. So they kind of stopped reporting on it. I, I've noticed like less reporting on it from the uh, crypto media. But I think, yeah, I think the outcome is that it's much more clear that Craig uh, played a role in, in Bitcoin's creation. And uh, maybe he's not such a loon. And I think that will have an immediate impact on the price of Bitcoin and hopefully attract developers that otherwise might write it off um, to look into it and come build on it. Um, so that, that's what I'm looking forward to. And, you know, I hope Craig wins. But what, what, I, do, you, what do you think is going to make that more clear? Like what, what will come out that hasn't already come out? That would so even you know so both of the parties to the case are like yes Craig is Satoshi and he owes me money no I am I'm Satoshi but I don't owe you money that's all known and everybody's seen that already and they've seen all the testimony so far like is a judge saying you owe him this money even though we don't know if you have it going to make people say oh shit like I'm 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 wondering what what more will come out that well, will create a higher level of respect for Craig I like it's hard for me to envision an outcome that does that? I don't think that is known that what, I don't think the specifics of the case are known. I think there is a version of the story that's told that is Craig is a liar. And that's just like, not really, that is part of it, but it's not the story of the case. So I think it's easy to kind of manipulate like, oh, this deposition was released and let's take the parts that look bad for Craig. And there are parts that look bad for Craig in these depositions. And let's, you know, show people that. Um, there's other really interesting stuff that looks really good for Craig. Um, and I think that's been kind of buried. So I think it's, you know, selective on what they're reporting 
and but, I but don't that's what think I mean. Like, the average person that, knows. Given that people are already sort of have the chance to look at all the facts and say, oh, there's some things that look good for Craig, and they're not doing that, why would they suddenly do that when the, well, when the case is over? I'm not talking about whether it's true, but like, yeah. whether the, why would that change the public perception? If he wins, especially, I think the reporting has to be different. And I think also the tier of reporting, well, I don't think the New York Times is like top tier, but the tier goes from Cointelegraph to the New York Times, right? It's a bigger story like, oh, the Satoshi guy, you know, he's been unveiled. And it also matters what happens surrounding it. So, you know, Craig has made this kind of, if you believe what he's saying, this principled argument that I'm not going to sign because code isn't law and law is law and all this stuff. So if once he feels that he's legally vindicated and he's followed the process of law that he wants to instantiate, and then he signs things and moves coins, then I think it's like, well, this is going to be pretty hard to argue against. Uh, argued not just that I'm not going to sign because on some principle, he's also argued I can't sign because I was supposed to get these keys. Oh, they showed up. Oh, wait, a week later, someone stole them from my computer. Like, it's all very, very confusing. Like, and you said earlier, you think, or maybe it was Jack, you said, he's playing this rational game of like, hey, I want to appear like the madman. And I can buy that. But you kind of can't have it both ways. If he's trying to appear like the madman, he wants you to think he's not Satoshi. He wants to be crazy and all over the place to, to confuse and whatever, or he wants the simple truth to happen in this linear process where a court says this, and then the keys do this. Like those don't, those are contradictory stories. And I kind of hear both said by Craig himself and by supporters. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not anti or pro Craig. I, I think the guy's fascinating. I love, I've learned a lot from listening to some of his stuff. I find him hilarious and entertaining. I find him bizarre, but I just truly am trying to like, I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. And I don't think I've ever encountered something that is harder to figure out what's going on without resorting to crazy theories of like 3d chess and subterfuge, which like there is no Occam's razor here. There is no yeah. simplest explanation. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Isaac, I share some of your reservations about like what impact will the case have, you know, itself the conclusion of that case. You know, something that we've experienced sort of seeking to get broader media is that you run up into this sort of two-sided, you know, enclosure where on the one side you have crypto media, which like absolutely despises what we're doing. And on the other side, you have mainstream reporting, which absolutely despises crypto generally because crypto sucks so there's really no i don't know exactly where the information goes um i could see it having a benefit you know i'm not sure i think i'm slightly less bullish than like other members of our team about you know what does the resolution of this case just that detail alone how does that impact things i do think there are sort of like legal reasons why if you were going to move assets you might wait until after a trial where like the you know, those assets were being sort of, potentially there was going to be an issue if you moved those assets. So I think that plays a role. There's also some other things that sort of happen in the official Craig narrative, you know, over the summer and around the trials such that it might be a natural point for things that aren't necessarily because of the trial, but because of the sort of culmination of the trial or other sort of incentives Craig has at that point where perception could change and coins could move. You know, there's, you know, the sort of madman thesis. I don't think it necessarily has to be 
everything was pre-prescribed from the beginning, like how I'm, I'm going to be a madman in this exact way. But I think once you have like, once you're rejected as Satoshi, if you know you're Satoshi and you've been projected, you now have like a big opportunity. Um, and so potentially. That's the sort poker of a, player talking, I can hear. There's a plan that like sort of springs based on like new information. It's like, I thought people were gonna accept me and I was gonna be able to like reshape the direction of this. And then they said no. And now maybe I have another opportunity to sort of like create my own little space where I can actually, you know, 10x my ownership of Bitcoin. Um, that, that's sort of maybe an interesting wrinkle that like you wouldn't have thought of at the very beginning of this if you were in that position. Uh, that, I, but I don't know. You're right. There's no Occam's razor. Like, I don't know what's happening. I'm just, I, well, it's funny I see like, some so, incentive to sort of play into the narrative of you're fake. Well, the, the logic of not, you know, let's say Craig is telling the truth about everything that he's saying. He's got the coins, he's Satoshi, all this stuff. The logic of not moving them, not signing, whatever, all that makes sense. Like to me, given, given all the various implications, that seems like probably the most rational strategy. But then a lot of the things in this court case don't make any sense along with that because it's like, okay, you are ordered to tell us where these funds are. And then it's like, okay, here's a bunch of addresses. Oh, it, oh, it turns out uh, it's not in those addresses. And then like, oh, well, here's these, you know, I got to get the other parts of the keys. Oh, wait, I, I, you know, they're not here. Oh, now they're here. Okay, now they were stolen. Like he's either lying under oath or he has no idea how to access these things. And so it's not even a strategy to not move them. It's just that he can't move them. Uh, or like, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of strangeness in there. One thing is very clear that Craig has obfuscated his, his past. And maybe that was, and it's kind of an interesting fact because it fits both narratives, right? Craig's this like liar. He's pretending to be Satoshi or he is Satoshi and he kind of wanted some privacy. Um, so I think that's certainly or, or true. He, or he can't decide and he's gone back and forth. He really wants credit, sure. but he's also worried and wants privacy and he's kind of torn and has like done a little bit of both at different times. Mm -hmm. Well, Dave yeah. can give you the details on this, but one interesting example is like the tool of trust three. Um, four, no, I realize. Four, yeah. or just things about like, <laughs> you know, I, I legally by like the laws of Seychelles, which are obviously the most important laws in this case, um, couldn't reveal this information to you um, until this date. And so even though I have like, you know, I'm contradicting prior testimony or I, like I failed to comply, it was because I had to, obviously I had to follow the laws of Seychelles. Um, <laughs> and so I, I do think you, also like, yeah. I, the one thing that feels very certain is that I think Craig really loathes Ira. Um, which, you know, if you follow the details of the case in terms of like, Craig and Dave Kleiman were friends. Or at least that's part of the theatrics that they want you to think. Yeah, I mean, there's there's that angle too. That's possible. But it, it's, you know, it doesn't seem like Ira and Dave Kleiman had a good relationship. And it, it seems like Craig sort of reached out to Ira sort of somewhat generously, maybe you know, maybe had an obligation to do so. But it seems like he made an effort to sort of bring Ira in and then Ira was just sort of a, has obviously become maybe a bit of a pain in the ass um, such that now like if there's a way where Craig can sort of within the bounds of, you know, not going to jail, make Ira's life more difficult, 
I would not put it past him to do that because he just wants to like, you know, throw a big middle finger to the guy who um, is sort of like disgracing his brother's legacy. So, okay. I got to ask you guys this, because this is something that I, I don't even know if it's possible to do, but to attempt it would be interesting. And I've thought about it for a long time, but your poker players, you know all about bluffing. You've got this investment thesis that requires BSV to, to be a certain thing for you to succeed. Have you ever tried to run the numbers and assess from an economic standpoint, the claim that Craig and Calvin, it's a total scam. Maybe they know Satoshi's dad or whatever. And they're playing this long game to somehow through some shenanigans, get Craig access to these coins. And then he's got, you know, he's a bajillionaire and they can split the profits. And then Craig came to Calvin and was like, Hey, check it out. I know an insider tip about this Satoshi thing. I think if we play our cards right, we can actually get access to those. I can claim to be Satoshi, blah, blah, blah. If that were true, what would the cost benefit be? Like how much money has Kelvin been spending? How much have they been losing? I know they're making money on some mm. things, but they definitely seem to be losing money on most of the things they're doing in BSV for a pretty long period of time. Like how, the, the risk of that con, right? They'd have to have a high level of confidence that they're actually going to get these coins, that they could actually sell them, blah, blah, blah. And they would have to know that the value they're going to get far exceeds everything that they've spent so far. But like, like, would you run those numbers? What would that look like, right? Like well, for that scenario yeah. to even be economically possible. <laughs> well, I think that's actually one of the strongest cases for Craig being Satoshi because the cost benefit is sort of ridiculous. You know, if he's just like, imagine like the audacity of just trying to do this. Yes, like there's potentially like a big reward, but I think, you know, people are not making economic decisions nor should they purely on like a how many dollars you know, is this, you have to sort of factor in like, what's the cost of like going to jail? Like what's the cost of like losing my reputation? What's the cost of like being murdered? Um, and so I think when you look at the likelihood of success of sort of coming out with just like a totally bald faced lie and just trying to sort of like scan your way to Satoshi's billions. Also knowing that like, if you're not Satoshi, like Satoshi could always just like come out and be like, no, sorry. Like you almost, you almost got away with it, but now I'm here. Yeah. Like there, I feel like it doesn't, doesn't really makes, it doesn't make sense. Also the amount of work he's doing and has done, which is, you know, that's not really in dispute, like the man's output. Um, so that that's a pretty the value big, of that output may be in dispute, but the sheer output itself is not. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, you're, you're putting in a lot of effort and sort of just like really rounding out the idea that you've been, sort of like a very prolific creator of like intellectual output for like many decades on relevant topics. So, so the, the, the funny the, thing about that vision also is it would, so that would require all of these fake emails to be produced, all of these fake contracts going back to 2009, just so much fake, so much fakery. And then, you know, the process of doing all that fakery would be so antithetical to Craig's vision of Bitcoin that he's, that he's pushing. Um, so it'd almost be like Craig and Calvin got together and decided to like commit the last act of fraud because when they succeed, they're going to make a system that would make this type of thing impossible. 
thereafter. Well, well, no, I'm I'm talking about a scenario in which they they don't even give a shit about BSV. It's all just a ruse, and they're they're just going to get access to those coins and be like, "Boom, we're rich. See you guys later. We don't care anymore about the network, right?" Like, but here here's my. I, I love the, the con artist question because uh, as Steve has pointed out many times, like there have been incredibly bold, crazy level cons in history that have happened. But I always ask, like, there's a couple of questions that that raises my mind. Like, okay, so say Craig is a, is a complete con artist and he's lying about all this stuff. It would have to be the case. I mean, it would have to be the case that he somehow has access to some information that only Satoshi would have, even if it's nothing more than knowing that Satoshi is either dead or not going to do anything about Craig making these claims, which would mean he was close to Satoshi somehow, which is interesting that if he's a total con artist, he's a con artist who somehow was close to Satoshi, which may or may not mean anything. But my question is always like, what's the con? So what is he trying, what is he getting from this? And people will be like, Oh, well like notoriety and riches and whatever. And I'm like, okay, well, notoriety that he's getting is all negative like for the most part with the exception of his small fan group riches i don't know what what do they think he's get what people who are like this is all a con where's he getting money for this con at what part does he make money by making this claim like he he goes around talks about being rich and, and acts like he's rich but nobody ever seems to answer where is his money coming from? His, his detractors or his fans? Like, where did this, when and where did this guy get a ton of money? Like, you don't yeah. just get it by being like, I'm Satoshi and I'm lying. People don't just throw you money. It's, like, how did that happen, you know? It's also a con with incredible foresight because per witnesses that are testifying against Craig in these depositions, this started in 2009. So in 2009, when Bitcoin is nothing, he's beginning this con where he could just, you know, go buy Bitcoin and become rich. It's like a very strange time to start the con. It makes sense to start a con to pretend to be Satoshi when Bitcoin is worth $20,000, but to do it when there's not even a market price is, uh, is very strange. It, yeah, it also would be a, a very sustainable con. I, I think something that a lot of people overlook is every two weeks, we have some sort of new argument or new research indicating that he is supposedly a fraud in a new way. And so all of the people who are investing in him get a fresh opportunity every two weeks to stop investing him in light of new evidence. So if you are deceived at one point, like let's say he deceived you like three, four years ago, you get an opportunity every two weeks to go back to him and be like, hey man, you know, they just showed this new thing with you lying. Can you explain that? And so he would not only have to be like a one-time con, you know, fooling you into thinking he's Satoshi, but he's got to be able to keep fooling you for like four years, even though the entire internet reveals new evidence of dishonesty every two weeks. It's know? every two it's weeks. It's the fraud, uh, fraud adjustment algorithm where, you know, <laughs> a new level comes out. Yes. Yeah, uh, there's also, go ahead. Well, there's also this idea of like, and I think this is something that maybe Calvin is like pushing back against through his sort of like pro BTC Twitter presence. But if you were trying to like, have this con get you were like trashing the um the thing that you're trying to con your way into getting you're saying like btc the thing that's most valuable right now is trash and by the way i'm gonna like try and like steal it <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean if it has a market price you know i i think that the theory that i've heard i don't 
I didn't go into the details of, but that sounds most plausible to me in the pure fraud scenario is something to do with us, uh, like the Australian tax credit system, where there was like millions of dollars of supposedly of grants and tax breaks, um, some mischief related to, to Bitcoin. I don't know the details of, but that sounds, that type of thing in theory sounds like a plausible way that somebody would try to pull off a con like this, or that's where the money would be coming from is by trying to um, use some other system. So by pro- proving, trying to show the tax office that you're running a business, so you get a bunch of, but tax credits. <laughs> I don't are, know. I, I wish I knew the details. It's they're, not they're, like, here's a yeah. check. Here's a bunch of money. A tax credit is normally like a, a credit against not having to pay taxes on the, those parts of your operation. I think the idea is like, I'm in trouble with the law. What's like a way I could get out of it? Well, if I was Satoshi, like that would be a way out. <laughs> That's sort of the idea. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it, okay. it was something like, it was something like government. There's specific government programs. Like, I don't know if they were trying to invest in R and D or trying to get some government contract and they needed. And uh, part of this theory was that in order to get these contracts, you had to have specific certifications or people on your team had to have specific certifications. So this is why he's got the wheelbarrow full of degrees is to try to get to qualify for these government programs. But again, I don't know enough about it to, to it seems like it. a crazy ruse. It just doesn't seem like the cost benefit on that. Makes well, I mean, if, if it's, this is a con, it has to be a crazy ruse. I mean, <laughs> I mean, crazy in the sense of like, there's just much better cons that you could do. And this is a very high effort con with like a low <laughs> probability of success. And, uh, Maybe it's like you know. a, a it's like a radical anarchist Guy Fox move. I am so offended by the Australian tax office giving uh, tax credits out to businesses that I am going to forge an entire company to take all those tax credits. And then I'm going to give them back. I, I feel like Walter people. Block would actually support this idea. <laughs> right? He's I think he's made arguments like that. D- Dave, you said you're you're working on a little bit of of a synopsis on this uh, court case? Yeah, so I mean, there's thousands of pages of depositions um, that have been released pretty recently. So we've been going through it and, uh, you know, it's like my opinion on the case changes a lot. Depending on what I'm reading, it's just like, it's all over the place. Um, So when the team has a a high level overview of kind of everything and we can kind of piece together what's going on, we're going to write something up, um, how public that write-up will be. Uh, remains to be determined, but ooh, uh, ooh. yeah. What, what, no, I love that this court. Oh, go ahead, TK. What's the most interesting deposition you've read? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of them. What's been the best read for you? So we just uh, sent out a newsletter the other day, and we took some quotes from the deposition of Craig's uncle. And that one, just I'm kind of like a I mean, I'm a history guy. So maybe oh, that's the was, one that's like the plot of Cryptonomicon, basically. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, your your twitch on that. Um, <laughs> I mean, his uncle is just a very interesting guy and he kind of gives the background of his father, Craig's grandfather and his influence on Craig. And I mean, his Craig's grandpa, um, I guess was like in Douglas MacArthur's like inner circle doing code breaking in world war two. And it's like unbelievable stuff. Um, but coming from this like very decorated 80 year old (laughs) veteran who seems to be just like, if you read the deposition, you'll see he's like a very sweet guy and also very sharp. He, he gave great answers. Um, but that's a really good one because it's like 80 pages long and it's just like packed full of crazy stuff like that. I, like the I love that uh, with- this court is, is trying to, you know, deal with all this highly technical stuff. And the only way they have yet 
figured out to share publicly the publicly available information is like these freaking unreadable PDFs. Like why can't court documents just be in like normal text where I can zoom in and it, you know, it's impossible I, to read this stuff. I think court listener is the private solution because the, the real source that court listener is pulling from is even, is even worse. What are they there's using like, like a some, typewriter? There's yeah, there's some like source, some, or maybe court listener is .gov. I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a pain to, to track all this stuff. I thought one of the, I'll answer your question, TK, and say one of the, um, one of the things that was interesting in the deposition was what you were sharing in our, uh, our Voxer thread. I, I've read almost none of the depositions, but it was the Antonopoulos one uh, that I, I, I read. And, I, and boy, that sure was fascinating because he had all kinds of opportunities to shit talk Craig and speak very confidently, but man, he chose his words very carefully, what he said and what he didn't say. He's not making a claim about Craig being Satoshi. It's interesting to see him back down. Yeah, if there's uh, one thing Antonopoulos did not do, he did not clearly articulate the belief that he thinks Craig Wright is not Satoshi. No, he didn't. Even when some of his tweets were read, um, yeah. it, where he clearly you know, was calling Craig fake, fake, fake Toshi, um, he talked about it in such a way so as to make sure that he was completely non-committal about yeah, his but but he was very committal about his non-committal. He made that yeah. very explicit. So yeah, so in, in the very least we can say that he believes there is a greater than zero percent chance that Craig yeah. is Satoshi and that there is some risk that he could actually be sued for libel if he wasn't careful. Like he's maybe he's very conservative and he's and he thinks it's a very small risk, but he definitely thinks there is a risk. I, I, I mean, it's hard to not just be like side-splittingly entertained by Craig's de depositions himself. Like just the, the craziness of these back and forths was like, did you write this email? That's not an email. Yes, it is. It's an email. <laughs> it's no, ridiculous. that's a piece of paper. Oh, the Craig okay, ones are it's great. It's a printed email. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not the same thing as an email. Like, I mean, the, if you want to watch Craig toy with lawyers for three hours, read his four depositions because there's yeah. a lot of that. I also thought it's funny. He talks about, you know, if you listen to his discussions about law, it sounds like he puts law on this pedestal. But then when, when you're actually reading some of the depositions, you get the impression that he's mocking the, the whole legal system you know, which I kind of appreciate. Uh, but he does not get the impression of, of piously well, speaking with the lawyers to make sure that everything is the law, clear. But they, they hate him. Yeah. I don't think he's a law and order guy in that sense. I think that's kind of a, a misconception. I think he's pushing back against a, you know, common belief that code is law and law doesn't exist. So it's, but it's not accurately reflecting how he views the government. I think, I think Jack wrote a great piece on, on Craig Wright, um, maybe you can speak to you a little bit, but um, I don't think he's this big law and order guy. I think like he is like a minarchist. He definitely well, didn't I mean, used here's to be a law and order the, guy. Yeah. The cynical take is that he never was. And then he was like, shit, I'm never gonna get these keys. I need a court to give me access to this. And all these crypto people will freak out if I don't have the keys. So now I gotta spend the next year hammering that keys don't really matter. It's really what the government says that matters. And he like created this whole like law narrative to say that's what proves ownership. That wouldn't be in line mm -hmm. with his pre-Bitcoin, uh, his work experience. Like I know because he had the keys then or thought he was going to get them. But once he realized he wasn't going to get them, he had to quickly like switch No, no, no I'm saying. And, oh, you're saying, saying he was like that before. Well, I mean, I, I had heard Craig talk about, you know, working with like, 
law enforcement. And that was kind of this meme I had in my head, but it wasn't until reading all these documents that like he was, you know, he was, unless he's totally lying, he was working with Department of Homeland Security and uh, organizations that were close to the NSA and NASA. And I mean, he, and this kind of goes to his, like his family has a history with military intelligence. So, you know, it's a crazy story, but um, I do think like he does have a respect for law, but he, he sees the problems that, you know, I think a lot of us would agree exist within law. Yeah, the, the piece I wrote is actually like, Craig has really made me think a little bit differently about my own sort of philosophy as an ANCAP. It hasn't changed it, but I do think it has sort of like exposed some areas where I think ANCAPs are kind of weak on the whole. And it's, not a, it's, it's in sort of a sense that they're being inconsistent with their own philosophy. Um, but yeah, I think in general, like, we have as ANCAPs this sort of mechanism for establishing laws through contract. But then that we're sort of antsy about the idea of like enforcing those laws because law enforcement has such sort of a negative connotation so when you talk about something like creating, like anonymity, or so creating a protocol where you could transact and communicate perfectly anonymously, it's really not very consistent with the idea of like law enforcement, regardless of whether those are like privately conceived laws or public laws. Um, and so I, you know, as like an individual in the world, you have to make your own decision about like is it worth it to create a system that like can't be sort of reeled in by any laws, regardless of whether they're laws I like or have, you know, agreed to follow or laws that were imposed on me, you know, is that a good thing or not? And I think it's pretty reasonable as an ANCAP to come to the conclusion that having a system that can exist outside of any laws is not a system I want to be a part of, even though I greatly dislike the way and find the way that laws are come to today to be immoral. I see the same kind of thing with IP where it's like, you know, I think handcaps can be pretty annoying about IP because to me, they're talking about the wrong thing. It's not that they're wrong. It's that they're, they're talking about the wrong thing. The first thing they talk about is that it's not the same as like physical property and therefore like it's not covered by the non-aggression principle. And that's fine. That's true. But that's not really relevant. Um, the second thing is that it has this sort of like ugly history of being sort of like these king granted, like, all right, you're the only one who gets to produce X. And that's ugly, but that's also not necessarily like an argument against the idea of like creating IP laws. Um, because clearly like in a system of private law, you could create contractual obligations around the idea of IP. And so to me, the real question is like, in a world with government IP laws, do you use them? And I don't think it's a simple question. I don't have the right answer. I think it's, it's reasonable to come to the conclusion that like, I find these laws to be too unethical for me to use. Um, and obviously like, do they benefit you or do they not benefit you? Also, I find that to be sort of irrelevant to the main crux of the conversation. Um, but yeah, I don't have a good answer, but I think it's not an unreasonable answer to say like, I believe in, I would want to live somewhere that had IP laws. The most accessible IP laws to me are these government IP laws. And I'm going to use this system, even though I, I 
personally would believe in a system of private laws and would opt to live somewhere that had private IP laws. That's sort of my ideal. Yeah, um, I don't think there's any any logical or moral inconsistency with, you know, just understanding, okay, uh, let's say, let's say I, I want to live somewhere where, um, you know, my physical private property is is protected. And uh, the only options available to me are where that is done by uh, government and they won't allow me to hire my own protection agency or whatever. It's not, it doesn't make me, you know, immoral to go live someplace where that's done, even though I wish it wasn't done. Uh, it, you know, may or may not be impractical. Those are, those are interesting conversations to have. Like what relationship ought you to have with IP in the real world, despite what you don't, or, you know, do or don't like about it. I think what I'm, and I have a very, very non hardline and a very nuanced look at law in general, because when I think of law, I do not think of legislation. I do not think of government law first. I think that's what most people are talking about. And like civil law, all of this stuff is, it all came out of private stuff. It's very, the the government monopolized portion of it is relatively small and relatively new. It's just the one that everyone thinks about and talks about. So most people don't even know what they're talking about when they say law or government, like most of that actually is private contract and whatever. But I think what I react to strongly in the BSV community it's, it's the opposite. It's not like, hey, look, there are interesting conversations to have here. Like if you're a business, should you patent something, even if you hate the idea of patents? Or, um, you know, should you have NDAs that are private contracts? Or should you blah, 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 blah. Those are all good, fine conversations to have. And it'd be stupid to say, no, anything that ever has a patent on it is evil and immoral because I'm an ANCAP. Like, that, that's, you know, that, that's dumb. You should be able to, to talk about those things like a sensible person. The opposite, though, is what I'm reacting to, which is like, Patents, therefore we win. And anybody who violates a patent is an evil criminal. No, absolute bullshit, that's wrong. Patents do not equal victory from a practical standpoint. Patents do not equal victory from a moral standpoint. Violating patents do not equal immorality and they don't necessarily even equal that you're gonna get busted by the law because that shit is totally murky, confusing as hell. Like this is not some clear cut like patents, good, victory we have them you don't like that's just the the height of ignorance in my opinion like that's shutting down the conversation too just in the opposite direction it'd be stupid to be like anyone who ever patents anything is wrong and i'll never work with them um but it's equally stupid to be like you don't have a patent get out of here we have patents woo you know what i mean yeah i think it's it it is a really important question because i think in the world on bitcoin patents are a more perhaps potentially a more logical way of trying to sort of build in margin to your business. I think in the sort of traditional tech world, it's been more important to like move quickly, establish a network and get your margin from having a network and not worry about being dragged down by one, having to create and two, having to defend IP, which can be very, very expensive. And, you know, it's, it's potentially not money well spent compared to just growing your business. But I think in the world of Bitcoin, with the sort of public and interoperable nature of it, it's going to be very hard, I think, to create networks for a lot of applications that today can create margin by having a network. Because it's going to be, I think, much, much easier for other businesses to sort of tap into the network that you created and potentially sort of siphon off or serve users simultaneously. You could imagine like social medias today. To me, this is something that would make a lot of sense to sort of transition into 
more of a universal social media where different viewers kind of are pulling from like the same set of information and there's sort of a broad interoperability. And so if that's sort of the direction we're headed in, then I do think it becomes a more reasonable strategy just from like a pure business standpoint to take an IP approach. You know, I'm still sort of trying to figure this out for myself. I don't have like, you know, I don't know the answer, but I do think that the lessons of Silicon Valley about IP are not necessarily going to apply to a world on Bitcoin in terms of, is this a good strategy or not? And so, you know, I, I think that's something that Bitcoin entrepreneurs really have to take seriously is what is like the value of IP potentially your business long-term. Um, and I don't think that the lessons of the past are necessarily going to be prescriptive. And then the moral question is sort of a separate thing, although, you know, on, in an individual's case, they're sort of tied together. Man, I, I, I might just be missing. I don't, I don't really see the, the business case on the IP stuff. Like that this sort of Silicon Valley approach you mentioned, that's very, very new. Uh, most of technology history since patents were, uh, you know, sort of became famous and started stymieing technological progress when the steam engine came along and have been fucking it up ever since. They, that's the status quo. The, the Silicon Valley approach is quite different. So like to me to say, yeah, that Silicon Valley approach won't work, you know, because they haven't really done a good job of like building big networks or anything. We better do what pharmaceutical industry has been doing for all these years, which is like, seems absurd to me. So maybe there's something new completely new uh, or a new approach that is necessary for dealing with these kind of questions on Bitcoin. But it seems like if you're going to pick a model, uh, uh, what, it, what is Bitcoin? I mean, it's a network. It has to have a network effect or it's nothing, right? It's a network effect business. All the companies that have built themselves on massive network effects, they were, they maybe started using patents later on in their history um, when they became big, but like they took a totally different approach to these sort of R&D and like pharmaceutical, biochem, all this type of stuff. You look at those two, which one's a better model for Bitcoin? To me, it just seems obvious from a, from a business standpoint that you would go with the, you know, the Silicon Valley, the network effect business approach. What I'm saying is I don't know how possible that's going to be. Why? I, I don't, I guess I don't understand why that, why that wouldn't be possible. Like, because, well, there's going to be a lot of competitors because the cost to entry is low, but that's exactly what's happened with Silicon Valley. And it's and not just have big winners. It's not necessarily the cost of entry. I think it's more so the cost of switching for users or the cost of like creating an environment that doesn't sort of interface extremely fluidly with the rest of, you know, the world as does a business. TCP IP is, does somebody own a patent on the protocol? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't think so. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but I don't think so. Um, like, well, the, why, why could you not have the underlying data structure uh, and then people can, you know, access their stuff by popping on the Twitch interface or the whatever, like you can own your individual data and you can have all these different interfaces that they build their own network effects on top of it, charge you for services or whatever. Like why, why does that require patents on that? Well, Twitch is a good example. So take Twitch and now imagine Twitch 2. And Twitch 2 says, all right, we're Twitch, but you know, we're a cent cheaper or like, let's say Twitch is getting on average and obviously a lot more than this. So maybe it's not the most practical example, but let's say Twitch is getting one cent every time you use the app. It's, I know it's less than that. And then Twitch two says, all right, it's only going to cost a half cent uh, because we can operate our backend more cheaply. 
all of a sudden, you know, in the days of Twitter, like it's not easy to port over that network. In the days of Twitch, potentially you can have the same exact experience um, where if you use Twitch 2, Twitch sees your Twitches. If you use Twitch, Twitch 2 sees your Twitches. Like you can port over your network between the two apps and you're just paying a slightly different price. Um, and just that sort of idea in general of like your audience is not, or your user base isn't unique to your platform. It's sort of shared across platforms. That seems like so a feature, not a bug. It's a feature of BSV. It's a feature of BSV. It's a huge feature. It's the feature of BSV in a sense. Um, but that it's almost like why use BSV is because you can tap into the network of BSV. So you have this huge network effect at the kind of protocol level, but at the application level, that's sort of what I'm talking about in terms of patenting is like right now at the application level, I think in sort of, especially in like sort of IT sort of applications, um, or internet applications in general, I think the, there's a strategy of like, let's build fast and get users and establish a network that's our network. It's not going to be easy for them to just go somewhere else because the network's not going to follow them or there's going to be some sort of high switching cost. And I think both of those things might be disappearing where one, you take your network with you. It's the same network no matter where you go. And two, there's very low switching costs because if you impose a high switching cost, it's a very counterproductive thing to do. So in that case, if your business, where are you going to get your margin? And potentially the way you do it is you can get some sort of patent or a chain of patents where by sort of innovating in some sort of technological feature or providing something unique, uh, you can get a margin that way by being the only shop in town where you can do this thing. And I think in some ways, a lot of people would probably say that as sort of like an unethical approach. I think that's a reasonable case to make. But I also think from like a practical standpoint, it's something that businesses are going to have to take seriously. That's just my contention. That's it interesting. Kind of, I would almost go the opposite and say that I think if you take that approach, you're most likely to get out competed by, um, you know, alternative technology that doesn't. But Steve, did you have something to throw in? We, we got to wrap it up. My, uh, my kids are starting to wander in uh, yeah, behind I, I, my virtual background. I was just going to say on that point, um, that sounds to me like making, trying to car legally carve out a business where there might not be one. So like if the service that is being provided can actually be copied um, really easily and you save all the network effects, then shouldn't have a business there. You know, that's not software that is valuable enough to generate a profit. That's just my intuition. Well, it's just a matter of how much profit. And also it gets back to the sort of idea of IP or sort of the defense of IP, which is that IP sort of generates an incentive to create new technologies. And what, if what you're saying is that like these technologies are not valuable with IP, without IP, so therefore they should not be created. To me, that's like a very strong defense of the sort of concept of IP. Well, it does IP not does the opposite in practice. I mean, I mean, look at all the programming languages. Like, those are all open source projects that are completely sustainable. They're highly competitive. I mean, what C plus plus? Like, what if somebody came who said, "I invented C plus plus. Now Bitcoin, it's built on C plus plus. You're not allowed to use it without my permission. You got to pay me." Like, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good for innovation. Uh, it's it's good for a few people, but it's unequivocally bad for innovation on a whole. IP is there's, there's well, no the, question the key, in my mind empirically that that is true. The, the key, I think, is the innovation on a whole. So there's a way in which you could say it's still innovative, like to have a business model that restricts other people from 
coming in and copying you and competing with you is still, I guess, some sort of innovation. But I think on the whole, I, I definitely tend to have Isaac's position here that I don't think it's a, your kid just materialized, by the way, right next yeah. to that. No, <laughs> I, 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 I hear I you got guys. a question on unbound, unbounded capital. Because um, yeah. we, we're definitely not going to settle the, the Okay, okay. This will be this will be the last question, then we'll bring it home. We'll leave people with with a, a teaser. They'll want to know more about IP and they'll all go research it themselves. So go ahead, TK. Suppose we wake up tomorrow morning and the world is on Bitcoin SV as you might imagine it to be, as you might wish it to be. What changes for unbounded capital in that in, in that world? What's different about your approach, your goals, your priorities, and so forth? So a big part of our strategy right now is we have a decent position with BSV the asset and derivatives surrounding BSV. We picture ourselves pivoting to be a much more venture-focused fund in that world. So when we think there's going to be this big rebalance uh, with people, you know, currently underestimating BSV. Once that happens, we don't picture, you know, holding BSV forever. Uh, we want to invest in, currently it's mostly infrastructure companies. Uh, and then as those infrastructure companies succeed and they lower the, the uh, barrier to entry for developers to make cool products, we want to invest in those. So the, the big difference for us will be um, less BSV, more venture. And also there's going to be a big, a much bigger pool of companies to invest in. I love it. Hey, gentlemen, this is a lot of fun. Thanks so much for, uh, for coming on here. We're, I think we're going to uh, file a, a copyright or trademark for, uh, for the numpties. And then we're going we're gonna to collect, uh, <laughs> collect royalties on that. No, this is awesome. Uh, I think we've got ongoing conversations that are going to continue here. So excited to see uh, everything you guys keep doing with Unbounded Capital. Thank you guys Thanks so much for having, having us. us. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Later, boys. Bye.